This episode of Talk of the Devils is sponsored once more by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit 1 million orders phase. Yep, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling ETH style turtleneck sweaters or blueprints for brand new stadiums, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to Talk of the Devils, you can sign up for our $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash reddevils, all in lowercase without any spaces. So go to shopify.com slash reddevils to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash reddevils. The Athletic. This is Talk of Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. I'm Ian Irving and we are coming to you on the day that United have officially announced that Eric Ten Hag will be the club's new manager, confirming the story that the Athletic, of course, broke last week. Joining us on the podcast today are Laurie Whitwell and Andy Mitten. Don't worry, we will be getting to the match at Anfield a little bit later on in the podcast, or do worry, depending on which way you look at it. And we'll also speak about Andy's exclusive about changes in United's scouting department. But only one place to start, Laurie Whitwell, and that is United have their man. He will begin his work on the rebuild in the summer. What are the details? Yeah, as expected, I suppose. It's been a while. 10 past 11, news broke. Sort of coordinated announcements with Manchester United and with Ajax, which I think was the key principle of what Eric Ten Hag wanted um, so that players could be told um, both at Manchester United and at Ajax before you know the official confirmation listen they've all been reading it haven't they they all know the direction of travel but at the same time I suppose there's a, a way of doing things so yeah then it came out uh, three years with the option of an additional one which is the way Manchester United like to do things they seem kind of unique in this sense of the, mm. the plus one option which I never quite get my head fully around but I guess from their perspective it gives them a bit more insurance if they want to trigger it we've got a, a quote from John Murta talking about why they, they chose uh, Eric Ten Hag um, and a quote from Eric Ten Hag talking about the honour that it is to manage Manchester United just additionally to that you know, we're led to believe that uh, Mitchell van der Gaag will join as assistant manager um, he's someone that Eric Ten Hag has worked with um, at Ajax uh, and, and they are talking about uh, additional assistants as well which we'll get on to yeah we will um like you said, John Murta has has put some quotes out with that press release that was uh, that dropped at eleven ten this morning. He says that Ten Hag is the choice for United, Andy, because of the attractive attacking football that he plays, his commitment to youth, and also the fact that United were deeply impressed with his long term vision for returning the club to the level that we all want to be at, and his drive and determination to achieve that. Of course, they will be saying nice things about him, but I think fans reading that it'll hit a few chords, it'll hit a few notes that, won't it? Yeah, I think that the appointment has been greeted really well by Manchester United fans. He became the clear favourite. John Murter is more responsible for Eric Ten Hag being appointed than any other individual. This is on him, as Ralph Rangnick was on him as well. Uh, John and Darren Fletcher, they were the ones having the face-to-face meetings. They were the ones going to Amsterdam to meet Eric, um, to see you know, someone they've got to go into battle with. 
because their reputations are on this as well. So they did speak to other candidates. We've spoke about that on previous podcasts. But Eric, um, I think the last sort of three or four weeks moved ahead of the pack, became the clear favourite. And I think we all hope that it works out for him. I think it was a sign of the times, Laurie, that the tweet that United released the news on started with two emojis, one of the Dutch flag and one of a shirt and tie. Uh, I can see sort of the old guard shaking the head at the thought of that. Um, but in terms of the message that Ten Hag has put across in his quotes on that press release, saying that he's fully committed to Ajax for the rest of the season, complete commitment and focus that team still has. I mean, they have still got stuff to play for, of course. The five matches left in the Eredivisie, the four points clear of PSV. Of course, he'll want to leave with another trophy in his back pocket. And of course, Ajax will want to know that he's doing everything he possibly can to keep his focus on these remaining matches and not look to the job in Manchester just yet. That's encouraging in a way as well, isn't it? That he's got the confidence and strength of character to state that even on his Manchester United quotes. Yeah, he's uh, clearly someone with a, a clear mind and a strong will of how he wants to do things. Very um, sort of punctual, matter of fact, sort of really drilling down into details of things. And this is an example of that, I suppose. Um, yeah, clearly in the interview process, he has talked about recruitment, the way that the squad will look. So they've had those initial conversations, but the idea now is that he's he's not going to be part of recruitment meetings with Manchester United, where he's pouring over you know potential signings and and why scout data and and what have you. He's going to be looking at Ajax and completing the job that he wants to do with Ajax first, and then switching over to Manchester United, which I think is a professional thing to do. Some people might look at it and go, well, actually, you know, you're going to be Man United manager. Surely you should want to get your feet under the table and start working now. But actually, I think it's the honourable thing to do. Um, and, you know, there's enough time for that to happen once the season finishes. Yeah, there's probably an element of more pressure after losing the cup final to the same team who were chasing them down in the league PSV last weekend as well that we've, t- we've talked about. Andy, I suppose the other factor as well is that he probably wants to just wait a little bit until he focuses on Manchester United because it's going to need quite a lot of focus, isn't it, to sort this this team out and this club out? going to be a huge task, not just for any human, but for any team of humans. And the reasons why have been very well documented. One thing which was pointed out to me during the negotiations, and I said it on the pod, was that prospective signings have been asking Manchester United who is going to be the manager. So it gives stability, it gives clarity, it gives a nice lead-in. I think Eric Ten Hag would like all of the signings done as early as possible and all of the departures done. We know that that doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen in football. It's a really complicated business. Players are on huge contracts as well. But I think what United have got to try and avoid is that late run in the transfer window after a panicked start to the season which leads to Radamel Falcao coming in, which leads to Harry Maguire costing thirty million more than the, the Manchester United manager has said he wants to go above. There's going to be tricky points along the way because just getting players is is difficult. But he's he's got a very clear idea of his methodology, the way that football should be played. Moving to England is going to be a massive challenge for him, but. Moving to Ajax was a big challenge for him. He was seen as the outsider, the outlier, the guy, the, you know, the, I was going to say peasant, well, that's not true because he's from a wealthy family. The, 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 the guy from the countryside near the German border and somebody from Amsterdam who works in football said to me, yeah, we look down on him a little bit because that's what Amsterdamers do. But he, he won them over by doing a very good job, good enough to be uh, appointed now at Manchester United. Laurie, you teased it before, and of course, this is a fast-moving story. Um, and we've got our 
finger on the pulse as much as possible at the Athletic to be bang up to date with this. As we're recording now, though, there is talks ongoing, we understand, and, and discussions about who else may join the backroom staff for Ten Hag in the summer. What can you tell us? Yeah, so we've mentioned Mitchell van der Gaag, who, um, yeah, that's one that talks are an advanced stage with, so I don't know exactly when they might announce that, but I would imagine something um, not you know, not too in the distant future. Um, Steve McLaren, we've spoke about him on this podcast. Um, we know that he worked with Eric Ten Hag at FC Twenty. He was his boss, and, and Eric was the assistant. So um, it's kind of you know perhaps role reversal here. But we're now led to believe that talks will be happening with Steve McLaren about a potential return to Manchester United. Um, it's still a very early stage, still a live issue. Um, but he's someone that I think Eric Ten Hag respects and would like to have on his staff. Um, United. We'll probably say to him, have a look at what we've got already in the building. Um, you know, let's see if there's something that could work there. You know, let's not, you know, I don't expect anything to move imminently on that at all. But um, yeah, Steve McLaren is one to watch in terms of he could be making a return uh, to Old Trafford. Um, but yeah, I suppose there's a little bit of time left to negotiate and, and sort of have a look at what, who else might be in the staff. It's, it's something that, I mean, I suppose you'd kind of want the manager coming in to have what he wants but then at the same time United have got a kind of consideration on the existing structures so uh, let's see but it's an interesting one to keep an eye on right? Absolutely you can follow this story of course as well and all the developments across the Athletic plenty to get stuck into including a live blog that's up there at the moment and loads of great articles as, as well including Carl's brief history of seven Ten Hag matches and what we can learn from them. That's from Carl Anker, that's up there. Now there's also a backgrounder on Ten Hag from Nick Miller, which we talked about last week on the podcast. And there's a new line I can add to it now, from Oldenzaal to Old Trafford. Uh, it's the full history of his career uh, and growing up and everything that he's done in football as well. And later on, there'll be a long read on how the deal was done as well. So make sure you check out all of those articles. And remember, if you're a new subscriber, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. Let's move it on then to Liverpool. Embarrassing, disappointing, humiliating. Those were the words of the interim manager, Ralph Rangnick, after the match at Anfield. Six years behind Liverpool, a rebuild that requires 10 players, not physical enough, not athletic enough. Gary Neville said it was the worst Manchester United team he'd seen in over 40 years. Roy Keane said he's not angry anymore, he's just sad. And Paul Scholes added, I don't want to talk about United anymore. Um Bad as it gets, Andy, wasn't it? Yeah, it was awful. It's funny how the, the opinions of those former players dominate the media narrative after the game because when you're at the game, you're not watching on TV because you're at the game. So the only opinions you're getting are from, from fellow fans. And there was anger, there was frustration, there was resignation. It was also expected. I got the, the coach from Manchester into Liverpool and I spoke to... 15 different people and every single one of them bar a 15 year old kid thought that United would lose and were mentally preparing for that to happen and lose quite comfortably but they carry on supporting the team it was as bad as we feared it could be the the um, ultra defensive formation which the players had not really practiced was unfamiliar loads of players missing that crumbled after four minutes it was, it was an absolutely horrendous night one of my worst moments following United was 92 Anfield when the team lost the league there and it just felt as bad. I don't know whether my memory's playing tricks on me 
I don't know whether you look back and think everything was better or worse, but it just felt absolutely awful. And in 92, Liverpool were not top dogs. They are now. In 92, uh, the team actually had a go. The other night was just horrendous. In 1990, when Liverpool won 4-0, United actually played quite well. The atmosphere was good in the away end, but 20 minutes before the end, the seats around me were, were emptying. People had, had just had enough in the face of crowing Liverpool fans doing exactly what I would do if I was them and just, just rubbing it in, singing Liverpool taking the piss. Uh, it, it, it was awful. And I think you've got to experience these moments to really appreciate the highs. For, for some United fans, it's the first time that this is happening as bad as this. And I said to my little brother, who came to Anfield with me, uh, it was his first trip to Anfield, um, he got a ticket at the last minute. There were quite a few tickets around, bizarrely. That never happens, does no. it? Liverpool away. And uh, I just said, it's not always like this. And he loves his team, he follows his team. He's saying, can I go to Arsenal? And I can't because there's no tickets about for him. And um, I said, can you remember the last time United won a trophy? Yeah, um, was it? And I just thought it was so depressing. That's a third of his lifetime ago. <laughs> Laurie, Andy sort of said it there in a way, but is this the worst United team you've seen? Was that performance the worst performance you've seen? Yeah, it probably is, because I mean, I grew up when they were winning the title, you know, um, so it's difficult to compare with that. And then it's basically everything since well, it, Ferguson, Even in the last it? few years, I, I mean, I know there's been sort of low moments and stuff like that, but the, the whole sort of feeling around the team and the club and the, the weight of opinion. I mean, we're getting to the point here where, you know, the, these former players are saying these things and we're saying these things and you're writing these things, but we've sort of said it before. It, it's, it's almost difficult to find words for it now because... We've been through this this season so many times. I mean, four at Watford, four at Leicester, four at City, five at home to Liverpool. I mean, there's more than that as well. That is a, that is a gruesome run of results, isn't it? That when you put it into context, I've sort of forgotten some of them. Um, it's called self-preservation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that performance was probably the worst because it was just so. It was a non-event, wasn't it? There was you know a brief flicker of something start of the second half, but the system didn't work. The players didn't seem committed to it, certainly not in unison anyway. And Liverpool just took them apart at will. You know, they, they kind of had a bit of a rest, didn't they? Start the second half and then they went, no, actually, we'll, we'll score a third and a fourth. Um, so I think as far as the hope and as far as um, the kind of standard of performance, that is the worst, which is kind of odd to say when you sort of think last this time last year, it felt like they were building towards something. It felt like they were the kernels of of a likeable, sort of enjoyable team were there. So it's disintegrated pretty rapidly, really. But it's going to be you know, a huge task to kind of turn this around for it's Ten Hag. I do think that you, you kind of look at Ralph Ranić, where his selection's right. You know, that's a question mark. But then it's, it's the wider structure, isn't it? It's the support. It's the reason for giving an interim manager the job in this situation and then it's who you picked and then it's you know the fact that there was no transfers in January I can understand that in one hand in that do you really want to spend a load of money for a manager that isn't going to be there beyond this summer but you look at you know what Spurs did and, and, and signed a couple of players and, and they seem to get a, an injection from that so you know it, it felt like United had sort of given up on this season almost it was 
you know, if they don't make it into the Champions League, at least they can perhaps wipe the slate clean and, and start again. But it was really deflating. And yeah, as you say, as, as, as trying to write about it, it's difficult to kind of find a new way to phrase it. The only thing I thought was, and I wrote this in the piece, was are people now, are neutrals beginning to feel sorry for United? Meme. United, you've coined the Meme last. United, I have, yes, indeed. Um, wow. <laughs> and uh, I thought I thought that was a bit harsh, maybe, but listen, it's it, if you can't have a bit of fun in this situation, then you're going to have to cry. So, and, and that's what it was. United have become a punchline where it's uh, totally safe to take the piss out of them because there's no threat of, of, a, of a comeback. There's no sort of idea that you might look a bit foolish in a couple of weeks because they're going to, you know, go and beat, you know, Arsenal, Chelsea famous last words clip this up if that happens I'm um, happy to mate but, I'll be happy to <laughs> but on the neutrals point um, I did think this because I'd seen a couple of uh, tweets you'd go out live during the game sort of you know fans of other clubs just going oh, this is actually quite sad to see um, and I put this in the piece and all the comments on the Athletic are like no no not feeling sorry for them I've had 20-25 years of United gloating and rubbing it in our faces so this is very enjoyable so maybe I've got that one wrong yeah I spoke to a Liverpool fan on our show for the Premier League on Thursday morning who was wearing shades and a Mo Salah t-shirt outside Anfield boasting and I said well <laughs> at least you're never going to get your childhood back mate that's literally the only thing we've got to cling on to now, isn't it? <laughs> um, when it when it comes to your piece, Laurie, it's on the Athletic at the minute. Um, there was one line in it which really stood out to me, and it's going into the point that you just made. The Liverpool fans at half time were saying "Ole" to the Manchester United players, warming up while Martin Atkinson sorted out the piece of technology that wasn't working on his arm or whatever it was. Um, there's no threat of even United mounting comebacks after disastrous first halves now. I mean, we're, we're so far past that. The idea that a group of fans can take the mick out of a team at half-time with no concern that there's any sign of anything, there's not even a, a late goal in Fergie time or whatever there's been in, in recent times, that sums it up really, doesn't it? Yeah, it was it was pretty embarrassing. And, you know, they, they were just having fun, weren't they? Because, as you say, there was no um, threat, no jeopardy um, that they might be made to look foolish. Um, Harry Maguire, at one point, he sort of stopped the passing routine because I think he could hear what was going on and thought, well, you know, I'm not going to allow this to happen. But then the players did need to keep warm. So <laughs> they started up again and, and the Ole started again. Probably the lowest feeling as a United fan in Anfield because it's it's total disdain, isn't it? You'd rather have hatred and, and, and ferocity than... They're not booing um, anymore, they're Oleing. That, that, I just yeah. don't think there's any anything that sums it up more than that, really, to be honest. Could you hear that down at your end, Andy? No, I didn't know that. Uh, I saw, I heard the songs like Liverpool taking the piss. Um... I, my emotions were exactly as you felt. Um, the manager saying what he said, fair enough. But a lot of this is on him as well. It's not been a good appointment. Um, the the formation, um, United tried to, to, to press high with that formation. That didn't work as well. Uh, I just see a manager who's out of touch with day-to-day -day management and it's showing. And I've been pretty consistent with my comments about him right from the first week there. I think he's a good person. I think he understands football. I think he's good with the media. But when you're a football manager, you judge by by your results. With Liverpool fans, they're doing what fans would do. United fans would do it exactly the way, if the, the same way if it was the other way round. It's pretty unpleasant walking through Stanley Park on the way into the game and the way out. Not in an aggressive way, like it used to be. Just in the fact that all the Liverpool fans are happy and all the United fans are absolutely gutted 
and it, it was just an awful night. But I knew it was going to be an awful night, and yeah. got to Arsenal, and I feared that Arsenal's going to be awful, and I feared that Chelsea at Old Trafford's going to be awful because that their teams are, are miles better than Manchester United. Uh, at least with Oli Gunnar, he got results. He really did against some of the biggest yeah. teams. Yeah, and that was the thing I was referring to before as well. There was a second half comeback, wasn't there? The team wasn't functional in the first half in any way. There was always a chance that someone somewhere could drag them out of it in the second half, and that happened so many times. I don't think that sort of scene at half-time happens before. Andy, your piece as well, an interesting read actually about the away trip to Anfield is on The Athletic at the minute as well. I just love the idea that Eric Ten Hag might have got the monkey bus to Anfield and just experienced that to know exactly how much work he's got to do. Jose Mourinho said, uh, if we're going to win the league, I'll come and travel with you to an away game with the fans. And uh, and so did Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And neither of those things <laughs> came close close to happening. So we're sort of pining for a, a brighter future. And when the manager... Uh, comes in. I think his announcement will be greeted optimistically by United fans. Uh, he was the clear favourite among United fans. Surprised now many United fans became experts on Ajax overnight, worrying as well that so many are pinning so much on one individual because I think he's a hugely talented coach, but I think he's got a really, really tough job, especially in face of how tough the, the competition is. Yeah, Stuart James has written about the idea that Manchester United can't take goal kicks compared to Liverpool the other night, who had one after four minutes, produced 13 passes and scored the first goal. Um, United had three in the first 25. Two of them went out of play, and one of them he described as car crash football. Um, the whole sort of basis of the way that the team plays is going to be an issue for Ten Hag that he needs to that he needs to change. Yeah, I just love that it's it's even down to goal kicks now that Liverpool are better than United. I mean, and and Allison was probably, you know, he's, he showed more skill in that first half than United's midfield did, right? You know, he, that that goal kick it wasn't a goal kick, suppose it was it was he got the ball and he, he sort of kicked it low and, and, and hard and, and straight to uh, Luis Diaz um, was, was a great moment of skill. And also doing the Cruyff turn to Bruno Fernandes in the penalty box, you know, that's that's how confident they were. Um, and I, I do think that that's one thing Eric Ten Hag needs to kind of sort out because Ralph Rannick has, has struggled with this, a formation that works and the players understand because, you know, the back three, as Andy sort of touched on, not sure how much it was worked on. People might say, well, the professional footballers that played in the back three before, Harry Maguire's played in the back three for England, um, for goodness sake, you know, to, at the Euro. So, um, you know, that, that shouldn't be an issue. But I do think that if you're against a team like Liverpool, where they've got Mo Salah and Trent Alexander-Arnold, who have that right flank absolutely on lock, um, and then you put Diogo Dalot and, and Harry Maguire together, who have not sort of played in that system before together like that, then... I mean, it was exposed within five minutes, wasn't it, with a straight pass where two of them were, were clean through, basically, and either one of them could have crossed for the opening goal. And then I sort of felt a bit sorry for Phil Jones sort of starting the game and then getting hooked at half-time. I don't know if it was a fitness issue or whether it was a purely tactical thing, but it, it did feel a bit bruising, I suppose, for him, perhaps, if he if he's um, you know only starting against uh, Liverpool after uh, starting against Wolves already this season. So All of it felt harsh on Phil Jones, didn't it? The, the decisions to start him in the first place, to put him in an unfamiliar formation and then to take him off at half-time, all of it felt harsh. Yeah, and and that's something that Eric and I will have to deal with. You know, the, the squad is, after looking like it was potentially had the uh, the, the promise to be a title challenger, you, you realise that actually underneath the kind of headline attractions, it is 
disjointed and unbalanced and you've got players that are obviously leaving so you know you had Paul Pogba coming off with an injury after 10 minutes which again that just underlined the calamity of the opening part of the game uh, Jesse Lingard coming on both players out of contract in the summer Nemanja Matic the other midfielder out of contract in the summer and people said to me in the comments on the Athletic that yeah you're forgetting Fred and McTominay who were obviously injured which is a fair point but at the same time if, if, as soon as you have the first two out which by the way people have moaned about a lot you know McFred is this there's this double pivot or whatever and uh, are they even good enough quality well the next you know batch of players is that they're all out of contract in the summer so in terms of managing a squad keeping it fresh and keeping it with players that are fully committed to the cause um, that is something that United need to address Andy any positives the under 15s have reached their cup final <laughs> <laughs> I sort of meant at Anfield. <laughs> it wasn't raining. It wasn't windy. <laughs> yeah. How long did you get locked in for after the game? 15 minutes. Oh, that's not too bad. And I got turfed out. I've got a question for you, Andy. So the, the, so a lot of fans left, certainly by 80 minutes. Were they allowed to come out or were they it's just stood in the, the concourse door. rather than watching that on the pitch? Those who <laughs> left before 85 minutes, to my knowledge, and I was very close to the e- exit, were allowed to leave and disappear into the cool, dark night. Then uh, several stewards and police surrounded the exits and prevented people leaving so that they could be punished for the final five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I had a row of Liverpool fans in front of me because I was quite close to the divide Mm. and they were just trying to catch your attention to give you abuse. And I just stood there with my arms like, "I, I will suffer. With pride. <laughs> what about Hannibal Medgebury? Because I certainly enjoyed the idea that this young lad would come on. I don't know what he was told to do, but this idea that he's running around the pitch, elbowing people, pulling shirts, getting bookings, nearly getting sent off. It just made me feel better. I don't, I don't, I, it's, it's such a sort of caveman thing to say almost, but the idea of him just going around kicking a few. Go on, lad, get in. He, he, he had a good, a good what, six minutes and... Is that all it was? Okay. I think a lot of the fans would have liked to have seen more of that spirit, that it was coming from somebody so young was admirable. But to be relying on that or on Anthony Alanga, a teenager, it's, it's, it's just really worrying for Manchester United. He just looked like he was hurting. He just looked like he'd sat there, watched it like us and gone, oh. just to do something. He can't turn the game around clearly at that point, but just to even make his mark in some way. He annoyed a few of them. That made me feel better. I think that some of the other players were hurting. I know fans won't buy this line. Um, I know that some of them are hurting. I'm sure, yeah. Fans just talk about um, where's the heart, where's the passion. And I don't think they deliberately go out not, not to try. I just think their confidence is so low. Uh, technically in terms of talents they were up against a far superior opponent it's really worrying because Liverpool don't beat every team 4-0 and 5-0 Liverpool dropped loads of points this season but they've absolutely demolished United United were missing players and I saw anger among a lot of the players I saw Bruno looking deeply frustrated but what, what, what could they do they were up against a far superior opponent with an inferior tactical plan and the heads were down after four or five minutes right at the start of the game. It was just the worst set of circumstances. And you mentioned the players that are going, the mood in, in the away was, I wouldn't be too unhappy if I never saw any of these players again. And some of them got more criticism than others. Paul Pogba's relationship is completely broken with Manchester yeah. United fans. 
And that's where we're at right now. Yeah, the sight of the away section barely applauding when he went off the pitch told told you everything you need to know. It was almost more damaging than what happened against Norwich. Um, Laurie, one last thing to sort of reflect on that was said after the game was the idea that they might need up to 10 players as part of this rebuild. Is that... Is that the disappointment of the defeat talking or is that actually the reality in your mind? It probably is the reality because you've got so many that are out of contract and you probably would move on if you, if you top them up. It, it does come to that. But the idea that United will sign 10 players this summer window is obviously farcical. Um, I suppose Ralph Ranick was perhaps talking long term in terms of the, the whole rebuild will take 10 new players. Who do you think um, he was keeping? Uh <laughs> I don't know. I mean, obviously Bruno Fernandes because he's just signed his new well, contract. Got that, yeah. So <laughs> you've got no choice on that one, Eric. It, listen, he, he, he was like an inevitable booking money towards the end. I, I had a mate who uh, is a Liverpool fan who texted me and going, thanks Bruno for the, for the booking because he put a bet on for him to get booked any time. Um, and, you know, the, the hack down to, was it uh, was it Jordan Henderson or, or Matip? Um, and I mean, the stare down between Henderson and Bruno was, was kind of something to behold at one point, you know, that kind of on the edge... Uh, fuse potentially being lit, and then ultimately it kind of diffused. Um, and I did, I did. I mean, I, I guess you know they'll keep Hannibal Mesbury. I, I did like his cameo. I think he was unfortunate to get Harry Maguire's pass as his first sort of meaningful contribution to the game. He's got that in him as well, Hannibal. I mean, anyone that's looked at his 23s performances, he gets in the mix. He's been sent off for them before, and he probably needs to make sure he's on the right side of that. It's good to have that edge, but. You know, don't be getting sent off. But he does. He does feel a, a very strong bond with his teammates. Um, there was an incident, I think, when Ethan Galbraith got in the mix with um, Tottenham players um, in an under-23s game, and, and Hannibal was sort of right in there defending him. So it, it, I do think that's a, an admirable quality. But I, I have a sort of slight hesitancy about saying chuck him in now because you know you put him into a, a situation where there's no chance of United retrieving the game. So it's purely. Let's let's chuck him on. Is he is he he might be getting something from that experience, but at the same time, I'm kind of a little bit hesitant to say, is there any point in actually making him sort of go through that? So anyway, he he might be one that stays. Um, but yeah, I mean, the transfer window is going to be huge again. We say this sort of every summer, and every summer there's kind of there's elements where you sort of feel like it's creaking along and it's taking time. And there isn't that same alacrity that there is. There's that word, Ian. I know you knew what it was, really. What was the word? As <laughs> as you get with uh, with other... T- I mean, you, you look at Liverpool, Luis Diaz signed him 30-odd million, 35, 37 million in, in January. He scores and assists against United. You know, United spent that kind of money on Ahmad and he's up in Rangers on loan and he's not playing is he for them uh, and that was sort of you know 18 months ago that they signed him so I do think that there's examples and listen I can probably point to load and, and people might say that's unfair to just you know single out you know one comparison United have had success in, in, in other ways in the market but I do feel like it's such a huge part getting recruitment right and you could see that that's what Ralph Rannick is thinking and we can debate whether or not he's um, the right man to be involved in that at all but he, he does know football and he understands I think how to build squads and and create that togetherness so um, I wouldn't necessarily dismiss what he's saying. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Oh, Right, let's move it on then. Um, there was a piece of news yesterday, Andy, that you broke on The Athletic about Jim Lawler and Marcel Bout leaving Manchester United, the two leading scouts at the club. What sort of a difference will this make, do you think? I don't know, but what I do know is that the, they, they were very big voices on the recruitment side and they've left the club. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of United's recruitment, with good reason given how much United have, have squandered on players who've not performed. And this isn't something that happened after Liverpool, like some people thought. I saw some of the reactions to the piece and people saying, brilliant, Ralph's getting to task. And that's simply not true. He didn't make the decision, didn't have any part of the decision. I've known about this for a, for a couple of weeks. This wasn't some sort of uh, news drop after Liverpool, it was more from a, a legal perspective. So they'll leave the club with the best wishes of Manchester United. Uh, Jim Lawler's a, a long-standing scout at United, brought some very good players to the club, was very close with Sir Alex Ferguson. But United want to move on, uh, bring in different ideas, streamline the operation. I've certainly felt a sense of too many cooks spoiling the broth at times with United recruitment. And I hear examples of players who've been offered to the club and six people say yes, 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 and two people say no. And the lack of decisiveness means that players end up going to other clubs and doing really well. And there are some pretty stark examples of players like that. Kante, for example, from Leicester, who ended up at, at Chelsea. I was even told recently of uh, Diego Jota, uh, an example there. And, you know, he basically didn't do, didn't do anything and he ends up at, at Liverpool. Uh, United have got loads of players on their radar and that continues to this day. The way that players are recruited, it's really changed. Long gone, I think, are the days when a manager had an eye for a player. There's so much data now, really, really detailed data. <clears throat> I met a, a, a man yesterday who's at a high level in that, and he talked more about coding than, and, and, than, than assessments of, yeah, he could do a good job. It's like really detailed the way that clubs watch players now. This isn't someone who works for Manchester United, although he's a Manchester United fan. So there's a huge amount of data going into, into recruitment. And United have got some good people there, might bring some other good, good, good people in. A lot of this will be on Ten Hag. I saw a line this week, Ten Hag has demanded the final say in all transfers. To be honest, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer had the final say in all transfers. Managers have the final say in all transfers. Their voice is the most important one. But it's impossible for one man to be scouting next season's defender or midfielder or forward. So the days of Ferguson, he'd send people uh, like Jim Lawler, like Mike Phelan to go and watch a player. And then he'd go and watch someone like, say, Shinji Kagawa to see with his own eyes. 
and, and exchange now there's far more information available about players and it's not just how many touches they have it's how many times they receive the ball under pressure um, in their own half and make a successful pass over it with their left foot you know while a players are within two metres of them. It's it's bizarre. What role does Coding play in the signing of Rafael Varane, Jadon Sancho and Cristiano Ronaldo? It has absolutely nothing to do with that. This was just a chat with someone who's working at a very high level. That's what you'd expect from the scouting department yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew what went on with Varane. So as well as a football perspective, you've got to look at the political perspective. Why would Real Madrid sell Rafael Varane? They had their own reasons for selling United had their own reasons for buying. I actually think he'll be a very good um, signing. Not this season, but I think he's a fantastic player. And that's why United went for Varane over Jules Koundé, for example, or, or Paul Torres at Villarreal. I'll give you another name who United turned down, um, Fernando Torres. So they watched him very, very closely and felt that his movement on the half turn while receiving the ball with back to goal wasn't conducive to a top flight Premier League striker and passed on him. Now, signing players is an inexact science. You're never going to get a system where every player comes off. But the news that United, uh, two main scouts have gone, was welcomed pretty positively, actually. I wish them both well. well that's why I was kind of surprised a little bit, particularly in Jim Lawler's case. And I kind of have a little bit of a feeling that that needs to slightly, the narrative on that slightly needs to change just because I did see that reaction to your story, Andy, and a great story and that people were sort of saying, finally, you know, get rid of the deadwood, you know, let's, let's start new. And I kind of just wanted to be a bit like, hold on a second, just because as you put in your piece, you know, Javier Hernandez and Henrik Larsson were two, okay, you can kind of debate the um, the absolute successes of them, but the unearthing players that actually go against the grain. Um, Nemanja, Nemanja Vidic was one that I got told about when I interviewed Chris Coleman because he wanted to try and sign for Fulham and Jim Lawler called him and said, no, he's coming to Man United, he's ready for us. And that kind of instinct for what United need, it, it, it goes beyond sort of data and coding, doesn't it? I mean, and maybe, you know, Jim could be too blunt, I don't know, in terms of what he was saying, um, in terms of his appraisals. Um, perhaps um, there's a, a, there is a modern way to do things. But I kind of just wanted to sort of say, just hang, hang about a little bit because it's not, you know, a case of um, these guys have been responsible for United's, you know, dreadful, um, you know, recruitment record. Um, you know, I, I understand that United need to move on, you know, certainly. And, you know, now, you know, you've got Steve Brown there as head of recruitment um, under Jim, under John Murtagh. So you've got, that. that is, that seems to be a, a clear lineage for who United are going to go and sign. So that that's, if that's what they feel like is, is the better strategy, then, all power to them and let's see. You're absolutely right. And you're right about the reaction. And I think part of that was because uh, when the news dropped the day after Liverpool, some fans are looking to pin blame. They pinned it on the wrong people. They're blaming Jim Lawler for losing uh, at Liverpool. Your point about Vidic is, is absolutely right. I didn't put that in the piece, but a point that he made a couple of weeks ago was the idea of players being signed because a manager has got an eye for a player, that's long gone because it's almost too data-driven now. So there, there's another factor. It's so subjective, this. Uh, Jim Lawler did a very, very good job for Manchester United. Marcel Boat was much more recent. These men absolutely knew, knew football. It probably I can see the reasons for them uh, no longer working at Manchester United. I, I get that. 
But sometimes when I see the reaction to, to my pieces or your pieces, you just think, whoa, that, that's just not true. And one of those reactions I gave, uh, what I saw was people congratulating Ralph Rangnick for dismissing them. It, it's just not true. There's not an ounce of truth in it. And sometimes a big account goes with that and people start to believe it as the truth. And, and that, that's really dangerous uh, as well. But... I know lots of uh, agents who dealt with Jim Lawler. He had a really, really difficult um, job in finding not just great players, but players who would succeed at, at a big club like Manchester United. Ultimately, though, United's recruitment has failed. It just has. They've squandered so much money on so many players. And fans, including myself, fell for a lot of them, hook, line and sinker. Did I complain? When Angel de Maria signed, no, I thought he was a great player. And is a great player, actually. Did I complain when Bastian Schweinsteiger signed? No, I didn't. But thought, wow, fantastic German World Cup winner. Yeah, everyone's going to be drinking German beers. Now everything's going to be great. Did I complain when Alexis Sanchez signed? No, I didn't. Did my job. I spoke to people. Oh, he's great because of this, this, this. They all failed. So we're buying into this as well. So I'm going to certainly be more circumspect and I don't have an issue if Eric Ten Hag buys someone who I've never heard of, even if he's from the Dutch eighth division. I'll give him a chance. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, I'm the same as you. I remember when Sanchez signed and I was literally waxing lyrical to anyone who'd listen about the fact that he was called the squirrel when he was a kid and he still climbs up trees to fetch balls that he's kicked up there. I never even questioned the fact that the ball ended up in the tree in the first place and how that happened. <laughs> anyway... Speaking of Alexis Sanchez, we're facing his former side, aren't we, that we nicked him from at the weekend. They've just beaten Chelsea. They were on a miserable run as well, Laurie. Um, that's ended. So maybe the Jew had another bad result then, are they? I, I, I have no idea what's going to happen on Saturday. Do you? No. Um, yeah, I don't know. Half 12 kickoff, isn't it? The early one. Um, so, you know, make sure you set your alarms. Um, they looked good against Chelsea, didn't they? You know, Chelsea, I've had success and and some failures recently you know obviously lost at home to Brentford but that that felt like a good Arsenal performance I mean some of the goals were brilliant that um Emile Smith-Rowe finish um, after the sort of nutmeg by Granit Xhaka to start the move was was fantastic um so yeah if they can string moves like that together uh, United better be understanding of their roles defensively because yeah clearly Mikel Arteta he's got a very clear idea hasn't he of what he wants from his team and they've had three defeats in a row where they, they just couldn't find the way through you know couldn't click into gear I mean they lost at home to Brighton but then Brighton went and beat Tottenham as well so you can see you know and, and put up a decent show against Man City as well so you can sort of see where that one was coming from um, yeah I think Arsenal look in decent form based on the performance at Stamford Bridge against a Chelsea team that was quite changed wasn't it it, was, it wasn't it was their best um, you'd think it took Thomas Tuchel rotated a little bit but if United play like they did at Anfield and Arsenal play like they did at Stamford Bridge it could be another awkward afternoon Anything to add to that, Andy? I just looked at the league table for the first time since Tuesday, actually, and saw that if United win, they'll go joint uh, on 57 points with Arsenal. They've got a better goal difference and did have a game in hand as well. Uh, I'm an idiot for even contemplating this. And in some ways, I, I, I like the attraction of the Champions League for the reasons we've discussed, but United's level's nowhere near that at the moment. So I'd rather win the Europa League, just win a trophy. Not that United are anywhere near the level of winning the Europa League. But I, I'm, I'm going to Arsenal. It's a very, very early start, as, as you said. Uh, 6.15 departure from Manchester. I'm making sure that um, I'm leaving 
England from London and not from Manchester Airport. So this is like the way my head's working at the moment. Brilliant. Go to Arsenal. That means I don't have to go through Manchester Airport. And then it's Chelsea next week. Am I optimistic about both of them games? No, I'm not. I'm not at all. So, okay. surprise was Manchester United. Yes, please. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, that's it for the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed that. Laurie and Andy, thank you so much for joining us as always. All the articles that we've spoken about, of course, are on The Athletic. There's one on there from Danny Taylor as well, saying that Eric Ten Hag shouldn't be judged up against Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola just yet, which is a interesting read for Manchester United fans. And remember, if you're not a subscriber, you can subscribe to The Athletic now for just £1 a month for the first six months. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. You get full access to all our great writing and ad-free versions of The Athletic's podcast as well. That's theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. Sign up now. But we'll see you after the Emirates. There'll be something to talk about, I'm sure. See you then. The Athletic.